Hello and welcome to Designing with Climate in Mind, the new podcast hosted by me, John Coop. In Designing with Climate in Mind, I'll be talking to some of the most passionate and knowledgeable experts to explore the ever-evolving world of sustainable design. I'm a regional sustainability manager at Interface, a flooring manufacturer that has been pioneering in sustainability for over 25 years. For the last eight years, I've been fortunate to meet and collaborate with amazing folk from around the world, groundbreaking thinkers committed to driving change, protecting our planet, and creating conditions for humanity to thrive. During each episode in this series, I'll be joined by guests who are at the leading edge of reimagining our buildings, cities, and communities, or whose message is provoking the change we need to see right now. We'll look at the science, we'll look at new ways of thinking. And we'll also talk through some of the challenges and how we overcome the forces that hold us back. So let's get started. Today, I'm joined by Oliver Heath, a good friend of Interface and always an inspiration. Oliver is an expert in the field of sustainable architectural and interior design. He's led the way in the field of biophilic design and well-being for over the last decade. We'll be exploring the nexus between sustainability and well-being and how both should probably go hand in hand. Equally, what the future looks like for more human-centred design. Oliver, welcome to Designing with Climate in Mind. Oh, lovely to be here. Thank you, John. From memory, you live down on the south coast in, in Brighton. So how's things been down there recently? You know, in the winter, the city becomes quite different. You know, there are lots of storms. There's quite violent weather. And there's something wonderful about having the city to yourself and the coastline to yourself uh, in the middle of the winter. And it's sort of weird then experiencing it in the middle of the summer when we're so used to the, the, the city being flooded with people. So um, it's a bit of a turnaround, really. And it's certainly taking some time to get used to that. I can imagine that because I think when we, you know, we're calling this now in, in June, but when kind of the UK lockdown started in March, the weather was very, very different. The skies looked very different, whereas now with nice sunny days, it's quite a... Yeah, it's quite hard for people to be spending a lot of time indoors or not being out as much as they used to or not being free to be out. But maybe, you know, we're turning a corner on that, hopefully. But I guess that's what leads us to our kind of discussion points uh, for today, because I think for the world of environmentalism, the world of sustainability and, and for the built environment, we are facing a, a new reality coming up. And we've also had, I guess, some time to reflect uh on everything that has happened in the last couple of weeks. I, in some ways, I feel like I live in a different world. It does seem like a different world, doesn't it? I mean, I, I think anybody that's been involved with sustainability, like both of us have, um, there has been this most fantastic, clear message from the environment that everything is connected, that you can't just go around plundering the natural environment and can expect to get away with it, that, that eventually the, that the wider environment won't come back to haunt you. Um, that message has very clearly been signaled with the advent of COVID-19. And, you know, that has kind of sent a shockwave to a far greater number of people that we can't continue acting and reacting to our environment and, and um, just treating it as a resource in the same way. So in a way, you know, we've had this massive mental and physical reset you know, mental in the, in the fact that we're all now looking at the environment in quite a different way, that, that we are not masters of it that it has the ability to send a real-time virus faster than a virtual virus around the world. I mean, you know, it's just the, the ability for it to kind of travel. It's been incredible. And, and it's made us all think, you know, 
we're all connected in so many different ways through communities, through travel, through our work, through socialization. Um, and that's, that's been the kind of the means for this, this bias to spread. And also just for us to just go, well, this is our moment to push the, push the reset button to say, you know, it's not good enough. We're not going to go back to things being as they were. It has been a huge pause and we are, I think, in the midst of a, a huge reset. And I think that for a lot of architects and designers and for those working in the sustainability field, there's been a whole host of different emotions and different viewpoints. A lot of things that people have been kind of wanting to highlight but really struggling to get on the agenda are now on the front page. If you're talking about rewilding and regeneration, people in the past would probably say, ah, that's something for the future. It's certainly not. It's something very much for the now. I think one of the things I was really taken back by was um, how you saw elements of nature coming back into towns. I think there were some goats running wild in in the valleys in, in Wales and plenty of other examples around the world. So it was very interesting to me to see how people's kind of connection and thoughts around nature were changing and how the narratives were changing over the last couple of months. Yeah, we've seen um, nature have the ability to start to heal itself remarkably quickly, haven't we? And just that ability for uh, fauna and even flora to start kind of weaving its way back into our cities in all those examples that we've seen. But also, you know, the improvement of visible things like air quality uh, across the world as, as we've been traveling less and there's been less diesel and sort of petrol fumes and industry in the atmosphere that, you know, just those views opening up again and seeing, you know, we can make a better world. Uh, that's something that we've seen us in ourselves. But also, I think for many people being locked down at home, not having that diversity of spaces that we're used to on a, on a, on a weekly and monthly basis, you know, we're just at home. Uh, and it's our four walls. And then we've got this luxury of being able to get out and exercise. And I think that's been a recognition for people to, to, to see that nature is really, really valuable to their lives and to their, their daily mental well-being diet, you know, to, to be able to get out, to go for a walk, to go for a run, to jog, to walk the dog, whatever it is that you do, but just getting out, feeling some sunshine and fresh air. Uh, and maybe if you're lucky to, to walk through the forest or through a park or along the beach. Um, that has been a, you know, a mental savior for, for an enormous number of people and a recognition that, uh, I think one's health and well-being is not necessarily just the responsibility of our employees, but also something that we need to manage and take care of for ourselves. I mean, in the last couple of weeks, is there anything that you've seen kind of your contacts doing or that you've started to do differently? around connecting with nature? Yeah, it's been really interesting. And I, I'm going to talk about something that I, I did this weekend. I um, was lucky enough to cycle the South Downs Way, which is, isn't very far. Basically, it's, it's a path that goes all the way from uh, Winchester uh, through to uh, Brighton and then on to Eastbourne. It's, um, it's very, very hilly. It's about the height of uh, three Ben Nevis mountains. So it was really hard work. But what was most wonderful about it for me was actually that deep nature immersion. To have the opportunity to pit yourself against a mountain and to say, I'm here and I'm going to be cycling up there. Uh, it was something really fantastic. You know, it's something really tangible that you can kind of get your teeth into. You can see a destination point and it's something that you can achieve. And I think what I've recognized is that connection to nature is that sort of tangible cause and effect. You know, if I walk or cycle up that hill, then I'm going to have achieved something. I'll have an amazing view. I'll be that much further down my journey. But equally, 
you know, what we're seeing is a lot more people turning to nature. Um, the idea of, of uh, cultivating nature, of caring for nature, or of growing plants on their balcony uh, or on their windowsill or in a garden. And the, the enormous value that is derived from that or of caring for something and seeing it grow and develop is so different to the virtual experiences that tend to surround our lives uh, and, and enormously beneficial. And, I, and we're just seeing that sort of explosion in interest in nature and how to bring it closer to people's lives. Um, I think a lot of people have had various adventures and explored new activities or have been out in the wild um, as much as they can be during lockdown. But I wonder how how that's going to change how we approach our our workspaces in the in the future. Because you, you've always been our guiding light and our goo when it comes to biophilic design and creating spaces where you know people are going to want to work, where you're going to get the best out of people, where they can be happy and productive. Um, whilst doing what they love to do. And I wonder, you know, with a lot of talk around a post-COVID world and new normals and, and the such about offices where people are really spaced out and they're gonna have, we're going to have to incorporate social distancing, how can we marry up those new discoveries with some of the, the needs to be, to be safe and to be sensible as we go back to the workplace? Yeah, I mean, we've just been uh, doing a piece of work on exactly that subject. And um, there is, of course, the obvious sort of choreography of what the post-COVID-19 workplace or, or any place is really going to be. Um, you know, so that is in part about how you introduce screening and sanitization and circulation routes and social distancing. And, and that is a kind of, that's one aspect of what we as designers are going to do. But then there are other things that I think are going to be important. I think the recognition that we're going to be experiencing some level of post-traumatic stress as a result, you know, the anxiety about going back to public-filled spaces of being in rooms with people um, who may be healthy, but with the perception that this virus is there and that there are some people seem to be silent carriers. So I think there is going to be a lot of stress and anxiety. And um, that's something I feel that biophilic design um, is going to be very good at helping to reduce because, you know, one of the key aspects of biophilic design and the idea of, of bringing elements of nature in and taking this human-centered approach is that it's, it, that connection to nature is very good at reducing stress and aiding physical and mental recuperation. So, you know, if you can walk into a space and immediately see that there are plants filling the space and, and that as a result, you know, if the plants can be healthy, then maybe people can be healthy too because the the correct conditions exist for both plants and people. So I think there's a sort of visual perception that we're going to need to be introducing. So rather than just having old, hard, geometric, sterile surfaces, the need for elements of nature, I think, is going to be greater than ever before. And, um, and I think that's an exciting opportunity. I mean, on top of that, I think we're going to be looking ever more closely at uh, other human-centered elements, like the need for fresh, filtered air, um, the introduction of natural light and views so that we can, you know, sit and relax and recuperate to keep a, a balanced circadian rhythm. So there are sort of those, those elements. And then I think there are some, some wider things that are going on. You know, I think when we look out into the wider landscape of what's going on, it's difficult to see that the world is the same because we have all these social movements going on that whilst they're not directly connected, inevitably it's all happening at the same time. This desire and need 
for us to press the reset button to say, this is not good enough in today's society. We have got to reset the button. We've got to take into recognition the importance of the Black Lives Matter campaign. Um, we've got to look at the Me Too campaign. We've got to look at, you know, environmentalism. And so in a way, there are a number of different things going on that when we go back to the workplace, we're going to be wanting to go back to different sorts of organizations that are aligning themselves with our new sets of values. And we're going to want to reconnect with those organizations as a means to feel that we're doing something of value, that we're not just going back to the same old, same old of earning some faceless corporation money, but going back to making sure our values are aligned to them and making sure that they are as well. I think one thing I've noticed is people are thinking about things more systemically. Mm. Issues are getting a little less put into one particular corner or organized in a certain way because we're realizing that everything's a bit more interconnected. And I think that has its advantage in that issues are being discussed that have needed to be discussed for years, but it also brings a, a challenge about how do you get focus? How do you, um, if you're leading a company, make sure that you are covering all those different elements. So it's a, it's a really interesting time. And I, I have to admit, I've not known any time like it in my, in, in my life. But I, I guess my one concern reflecting on that is how we make sure that we don't lose this moment to, to do things differently, that we don't miss that opportunity. Yeah, well, absolutely. I, mean, I completely agree. This idea of systems thinking is something that may have been alien to many people, but now they realize that all these things are connected. You know, whether it's, you know, a, a viable food source in a city in China could have an impact on people in the UK um, and, and, and all those millions of connections that mean that it is, you know, there's system thinking is, is something that we've all suddenly realized we consider. And without a doubt, you know, things have changed. How we keep that in place is, is another matter. But what we are seeing is, is the kind of the, the kind of mobilization of social media and the ability for these viral messages to get picked up for the smallest of things. You know, uh, a World War II veteran walking up and down his garden, becoming a national hero. Um, you know, there are some amazing stories that are showing us that even the, the, you know, what seemingly small activities can gain this enormous traction and people can get on board and get behind it. And so, you know, um, as we've seen with our ability to communicate virtually through, you know, maybe the likes of Zooms or Skype or Teams, whatever, equally, we're able to, to get on board with social media and these messages are able to get across and we can see the, the support that's coming from it. I mean, it's, it's, it's so unbelievably powerful in a way that we've never been able to do before. Absolutely true. I've seen some remarkable things that I think um, we wouldn't have necessarily had had it not been for the situation we find ourselves in. The last couple of months have really seen a rise in the use of online communication, whether it's Zoom or Microsoft Teams, whether it's for your pub quiz, whether it's for an important business meeting, whether it's for an online choir, a whole host of things have been happening. And um, I have to admit, as we both give a lot of talks um, on sustainability and eco-design. And I have to admit, I've been feeling a little bit like a, an avatar rather than a human being at times. And I, I was just wanting to know, Oliver, if you'd had a, a, similar, a similar experience. 
Yeah, so um, most recently, I mean, as long as as well as the other bits and pieces that you've been talking about uh, with family and pub quizzes, uh, I've been doing lots of webinars on biophilic design and reaching, you know, completely new audiences all over the world. So, uh, you know, there was one day last week where I was speaking to architects in New Zealand and Australia, uh, albeit at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, then I did another webinar to, uh, you know, 270 architects across Europe. Uh, and then in the end of the day, I had a kind of uh, creative meeting with people in Atlanta in America. So it was just, you know, literally communicating around the world with people. So Phileas Fogg took 80 days to get around the world. You managed to do it in about 17 hours. I know. It's amazing. Um, and it is, it is kind of fantastic that we can suddenly reach these new audiences without the associated carbon footprint that is, you know, forever kind of the bane of one's life when we're in the world of sustainability and wanting to get those messages out there. Suddenly we're doing it and speaking to all these new people. In terms of how the big return to work, I think this is going to be really interesting because we're talking around a reset, a need for new ideas, a need to explore this nexus between sustainability and well-being. And that's going to require a lot of brainstorming, creative thinking. And you know, I have my, my doubts about whether that can all be performed uh, virtually or, or not. And from your perspective, in terms of what you're, you're seeing in, in the market, how, how do we foster this kind of sense of community um, and this the right space and environment for great ideas to be born and to thrive? Yeah, so it's a really good question. We've recently written a white paper for Interface um, called uh, Creating Positive Spaces by Designing for Community. And it's looking at uh, Stephen Kellett's approach. So um, there are two approaches to, to biophilic design. One is a sort of neuroscientific approach, which kind of looks at how nature improves our physical and mental well-being individually. And then Stephen Kellett's approach, uh, which is much more socio-psychological, which is about how we form connections between places and spaces, people and products in those places as well. And um, one statistic in it is that actually, you know, 70% of what we communicate is nonverbal. So it's through our actions, through eye contact, through body movements, and so much of what we're trying to communicate um, happens in, in the physical world. And, and, you know, whilst we can perform relatively well and undertake, you know, practical tasks through virtual communication, I think it really is important that we find ways of getting back and connecting with one another as a means to sharing ideas, but also creating, you know, um, identities uh, and having cultures. You know, one of the important things that we used to do pre-lockdown in my, in my company was that uh, at, at about 12.30, um, one person would stop work, go and chop some vegetables, put the vegetables and some stock into a soup machine, press the button, and half an hour later, we'd all sit down for, for you know, bowls of fresh hot soup. And that wasn't necessarily about just making sure people were eating well. It was about ensuring that we stopped work that we had a, a mindful moment, but also that we sat around a table doing something sort of therapeutic, really, and just giving ourselves the opportunity to talk. Um, doesn't need to be about work. It could be about what you were watching on TV or a book you're reading or something you saw or participated in or, or an activity you were doing. And it was 
you know, this would be the most fantastic time just to connect with one another, to become a culture, to become a little family and to make those connections that aren't necessarily just about productivity. And of course, we, we lose all that. We lose that opportunity. Um, whilst we can sit and eat lunch together, it's going to be around our desks and around uh, our laptops. So, you know, I think it's important that we, we, we remember just how important those, those human face-to-face connections are and activities, whether it's around work or socializing or, or other sort of mindful activities. And the value that that brings to an organization. I guess when we think about creating spaces that allow for social distancing, but also um, kind of respond to the, the needs that we have to respond to, to COVID-19, we have to make sure that it doesn't detract away from rebuilding some of those communal experience. It's, it's weird, but if we think about an office, those water cooler moments, that chat while someone's making a, a coffee, um, sitting down to have lunch together. It's such a powerful thing. It also reminds me the next time I'm down visiting your studio, I have to tie my meeting to get some soup with you guys. But, um, it's, I wonder if that's a little bit under, under threat or if we have to think of clever ways around to do that. And I, I just don't think the answer can always be um, like doing it digitally. It's going to have to be a way to do it in person but safely. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that we explored in our Designing for Community is we actually came up with seven ways of enhancing community through biophilic design features. The premise of it being was that shared experiences in nature can be a bonding and unifying force. So finding ways of introducing elements of nature, you know, things that we all connect with is really important. So we kind of listed, you know, seven different features. And I think more and more what we're seeing and, and feeling is that we're not necessarily going to be going back to work to sit at our desks. Because to be honest, we can now prove that we can do that perfectly well at home. So it may be that when we go back to the workplace, that we do have a far greater focus on the need for meeting and connecting and sharing ideas. And maybe that's sitting around the equivalent of a fire pit or a water feature, something that engages us and just puts us in a different frame of mind. But maybe it's about fostering opportunities to just have a kind of gentle, virtual kind of connection with somebody as we're walking through a space and and, and finding somewhere just to sit and have a quiet conversation. So I think the guide was really interesting and it picked up on Stephen Kellett's work, uh, plus also um, the work of psychologists who, who are interested in how we form communities. And it combined these ideas to create these seven features. So more and more, what we're feeling is that you know, the, the ideas that we dug up and created for that community guide are going to be important in our need for what the future workplace is all about. Fundamentally, what we're missing is the creative bit. And it's those creative interactions that can, you know, just through a conversation and the sharing of ideas start to show us share knowledge and skills and resources. And through all of that comes innovation when you put two people together thinking in different ways, but having kind of common, common pathways. So it's that innovation that I think we're going to need to find ways of reintroducing back into our lives, our professional lives and our workplaces. Absolutely. So I think the reality is that for the next year or so or longer, there will be a significant proportion of people working from home or at least spending part of their days working from home. And one of the things that I saw that really helped me through um, those early days 
was from yourself, Oliver, in terms of your healthy homework Instagram stories with helpful tips. Do you want to talk us through a couple of your your favorite tips for, for those in the design community that are working from home? Yeah, so, you know, I think top of my list is it's going to be about natural light, getting a photon shower, which is an intense burst of natural light first thing in the morning. It is really important to reset our circadian rhythms. Uh, you know, ordinarily, we spend 90% of our lives indoors uh, under, you know, artificial lighting, but getting out, seeing some of those subtle changes in light in the morning or maybe throughout the day, and particularly into the evening, helps to keep a balanced circadian rhythm. And our circadian rhythm is kind of fundamental for our body's uh, kind of production of melatonin and serotonin, those sleep-wake hormones. And, and so not only does it keep you alert and awake in the daytime, but it also helps you sleep at night. So getting lots of natural light is my first tip. The second thing is, you know, making sure you really prioritize sleep. Um, you know, sleep is so important for your interpersonal relationships with people, your ability to concentrate, to focus, but also things like your diet. And as a result, you know, wider health issues. And the third tip is, you know, connect with nature. So, so having plants on your desk maybe around your home, maybe positioning your desk with a view onto a balcony, maybe a tree outside, maybe you've got a garden or some element of nature. But having views onto nature has been proven time and time again in multiple research studies to actually help to reduce stress, to, to improve recuperation from physical and mental tasks, but also important to improving productivity from anywhere between 6 and 15%. So, you know, the, the research behind it is, is absolutely um, completely compelling. And it's been proven over and over again. So having plants and greenery in your life, it's not just good for kind of air quality and making your home look nice. It really does help your, your physical and mental well-being. So those are my three top tips. I have become partial to a photon shower. Nice. And I have been enjoying repotting my plants, although I lose some of them. Um, and on the sleep side, I think an interesting thing for a lot of people in the last couple of months is people's sleep's been really interrupted. They found it quite hard. To, to get a full night's sleeps. But I, I mean, these, these have been wonderful tips that I'm sure people will be using well beyond um, now and this summer into, into their new working, working conditions. Yeah, I mean, we're now all having to take a lot more care of ourselves and, and recognizing that our health and well-being is our own responsibility as much as it may be that of our employer. So we've got to look after ourselves, particularly in these, you know, really stressful and challenging time so so finding what works for you is important i wonder how people can bring some of that into their their workspace we often when we talk about biophilic design we're trying to influence designers and the employer but i wonder if we can see some employee action in terms of bringing in a couple of those practices and lessons into their employers and demanding that they have a a chance to look after their well-being. Yeah, I think I think uh, th there are lots of really simple things that we can do. You know, we wrote this uh, white paper with Interface uh, called Creating Positive Spaces Using Biophilic Design. And the point about it was that there are loads of simple things you can do. So we separated out the 14 patterns of biophilic design into zero to low cost, medium to high cost. And the simple things you can do is just making sure that you do get out, that you do get some natural light, that, that you 
find a local park or a walking route and that you do some exercise, you get some fresh air, some sunlight, you make the most of any natural resources in your local environment. And then the simple things, maybe, you know, a pot plant on your desk, uh, maybe there's an atomizer with some, some invigorating scents. If you're, you're working in an, an acoustically distracting environment, use something like the Noisly app, which is an app that you can create uh, natural noises. So you can create a little backdrop, not necessarily to completely cover the background noise, but just to mask it. I think one of the downsides to COVID is we missed out on a lot of great events that were coming up. And I believe, Oliver, you, you were working on something called Planted Cities that was going to be around May time this year that was come together really nicely. So the focus of the show is on sustainable design, urban greening and well-being. And we're looking at how different brands and organizations are contributing to that through the lens of design and what it can do. Um, so I'm basically heading up the, the talks and events. And then we've got a great lineup of other people organizing um, the kind of contents for the show, uh, the kind of design features. It's going to be really exciting. So it should have been at this time of the year. It should have been about May, June. It got delayed, of course, as everything is. So we're hoping to hold a virtual show later this year and then to have the real show in May 2021. You know, I believe that design has such a crucial role to play in engaging people with those wider messages and, and, and kind of really creating change in people's lives and the way they act um, with the objects and also with the wider environment. So I'm so excited to be part of this. Final question. Behind anyone that works in eco-design or sustainability, there's a, a backstory. And one of my favourite things is to find out those personal connections and what what happened in people's lives to make them do what they do today so oliver got to take this opportunity to ask you what was it and when was it that your passion for nature and sustainability really started yes that's a good question because um, there are so many nature reference points i grew up in brighton and we lived both in the city but also just outside in the countryside so one of my earliest memories of architecture is work, walking along uh, one of the old piers and looking down through the slats and seeing the waves kind of crashing underneath. And there was this sort of real excitement of being on a, on a, on a sort of one-way bridge with the sea underneath and maybe dropping coins through the, through the slats. But, you know, this kind of combination of nature and buildings being so exciting and so much about fun and stimulation, what, you know, the, what the, the, the peers were all about. So there was that as a very early memory. And as I was growing up, you know, we spent a lot of time in nature, building dens, climbing trees, uh, getting muddy, playing in rivers, doing all those sorts of things that I think kids should be doing more of. And that fosters a real sense of connection with nature, of taking risks, of testing yourself by climbing trees. You know, you have the occasional accident, you fall out, you build the wrong sort of den, you, you get soaked, you get your boots stuck in the mud. So that was my kind of early formative years. Um, and then as I grew up, uh, I got into sailing and then uh, windsurfing as well. And also scuba diving. I was a scuba diver. Uh, I qualified at the age of 14. So from that point was diving on wrecks out in the English Channel, which was both exciting and terrifying in equal measures. You sort of scuba dive through the murky depths looking for wrecks filled with conger eels and fish and eels and crabs and all sorts of things. So and then um, when I was 18, I became a windsurfing instructor. So I uh, tended to spend all my summer holidays 
um, teaching windsurfing to people. And it was a really good sort of experience of teaching people both to enjoy nature uh, and get the most out of it, but also really to respect it, to, to recognize that if you don't look at the signs, it will absolutely flatten you. It will kind of, if you're lucky, just kind of send you back to shore uh, with broken equipment. And alongside that, you know, when I was teaching windsurfing, I was also studying architecture uh, at Oxford and at the Bartlett's at the UCL in London. And so in a way, I think my interest and passion for nature combined with the built environment to kind of cement this connection to go, you know, buildings shouldn't just be about holding out the elements. It should be about welcoming those things that are so exciting and so stimulating into our built environment and finding ways to create these much more permeable barriers between the natural world and our human built environment world and recognize that, you know, we're not above nature. We are absolutely part of it and we're at the mercy of it. We can build these little structures that resist it, but we're much better if we welcome it into our lives and benefit from from that connection as a means to feel happier and healthier, reducing stress of getting back to being at our best and recognizing that as human beings, we're, we're very much part of nature and have always been part of it throughout our, our evolution. And that genetic connection is still there. So Oliver, thank you so much for your time today and taking a bit of time to talk to us. If people want to find out more about the work you're undertaking and what you're doing, what's the best way for them to, to keep and follow up with what you're up to? Well, yeah, they can look at our website, which is oliverheath.com. And of course, we're also on social media uh, on instagram as oliver heath uh on twitter as oliver heath design um linkedin as well as oliver heath so we're out there on, on all those social media channels so so do come and check us out um and you know we kind of interact with different social media in different ways whether it's pictorially or kind of those verbal messages but you get the whole picture on our website as well so take a look well i recommend if you don't follow oliver already and his team do you say, I mean, we've had the pleasure of collaborating with you as Interface for a number of years and we are much, much richer for it. So thank you very much for your time and I, I hope it's been fun for you too. Wow. From bike rides in the South Downs to photon showers to creating conditions to innovate in the offices of the future. I think you'll agree Oliver's a tour de force when it comes to well-being and sustainability. Thanks for joining us on our first ever episode of Designing with Climate in Mind. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and of course leave us a rating if you can. Next time round, I'll be talking to design thinker, eco-innovator and Doolech's co-founder, the brilliant Mark Shaler, on the mindset shifts for a green recovery. Until then, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>